Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Oh, man. You made friends with them. They want you to get drunk and feel like you belong. Because they make you feel cool. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. Today, as part of our throwback series, we're going to be discussing Almost Famous. Starring Patrick Fugit, Kate Hudson, Billy Crudup, Francis McDormand, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Directed by Cameron Crowe. One day, you'll be cool. Look under your bed. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's one of the people you'll meet on the long journey to the middle. It's Gally in Glasgow. And still holding out hope that one day I'll be cool. It's Devlin in London. In 11 years it's going to be 1984, man. Think about that! It's Patrick from London. (laughs) (laughs) We're back and we're discussing... uh, one of my picks, so if you're a first-time listener to the Rewind Movie Podcast, let me just give you a, a quick brief of what we do. So we pick seminal films from our past, and we explore them and try and see if, um, you know, if we can recommend them to modern audiences that have either never seen it or want to revisit it. And it's my pick today. I have uh, I've picked Almost Famous, Cameron Crowe's semi-autobiographical movie from the year 2000. I suppose I should wish you a happy new year. Yeah, happy new year, Patrick. Uh, did you get up to any fun? No, uh, Gally and I, um, we shared a very pleasant candlelit steak together for Hogmanay, which was uh, which was delightful. Uh, I'm imagining that you are sharing that steak, Lady in the Tramp style. Like, you just have, like, one... You have one end of grizzled meat in your teeth each. And it's working your way to the middle. I was going to say something about sucking on the bone there, but that really wouldn't have worked there, would it? <laughs> no, that was nice, Gally. Thanks for uh, taking me out in Glasgow. Um, yeah, nice bars there. It's good. Yeah, well, the offer's open to anyone who uh, will who'll, who'll have me, to be honest. So, yeah. <laughs> anyone. <laughs> Literally anyone who listens to this. Yeah. That ah, is uh, that is an open. We're going to put Gally's address on the uh, on the. I'll just put the address of the restaurant he took me to. Just meet him. Here. It'd be like Seabass on Dumb and Dumber. Meet here. It's <laughs> seven p.m. on the 29th of February for man snake. Uh, Gally, how come? Yes. How come we watched Almost Famous? Why? Why did you choose Almost Famous for us? Unequivocally, this is one of my favorite writer passages. Spoiler: coming of age movies. Yep, spoiler alert, sandwiches have been eaten, stolen even. Um, the buffet is closed. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's a story about two of the most important things in my life. Uh, music. I dig music and desperately trying to be cool. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously only kidding on the second one. Yeah, but you weren't when you were at uni, were you? <laughs> no, I wasn't, no. We don't talk about that now. We've grown up. Um, but no, I um, I mentioned it actually when uh, when me and Devlin did a pull and focus episode on on Wonder Boys. I've got a bit of a soft spot for films about writing in any form, even though this film doesn't necessarily go into the the craft and the artistry behind a written piece. Um, it's still kind of somewhat about writing, and uh, and I pivot towards sentimentality and optimism. Eternal optimism. You guys know this. I'm a, I'm an easy win for a, for a, you know, a saccharine cry. 
So yeah, this uh, this film, but genuinely did speak to me. I think when I was younger, um, which is a bit, it's a bit cliche. Well, just chat, just having but... known you when we were younger, is that? I mean, I remember you wanted to write and direct when you were younger. So is, is it born of that? Is it? Is this the kind of film that you thought yourself wanting to make? Had you been gone down that route? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I, I think genuinely, the film did inspire me um, in whatever whatever form. I mean, certainly like my musical tastes. Like it inspired me to just expand it and listen to other things. And um, and yeah, you're right about the the type of film, the type of story that I wanted to tell. And and now still do gravitate towards, uh, and the other thing that it also uh, conjured up was like a real love affair for road tripping around the USA. You know, not okay. not just a Red Hot Chili Peppers song, but but like I remember me and Devlin uh, when we were in the basement just trying to find a way out. Um, we would discuss like going around the US on a greyhound and just mm. discovering you know americana and we really wanted to get a taste of it but we just didn't have any money did we uh, but i'm not gonna lie this film uh really does conjure up warm nostalgic feelings so um yeah that that is the reason why i picked almost famous uh what about you devlin because we did discuss it a lot at university so i yeah. assume you came to it what roughly the same time as me yeah 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 i i, I really i i well um Terrible admission. Uh, I I think I so I, did, I didn't see this film at the cinema. I picked it up on video, and I am fairly certain I bought it on on video uh, in Darlington, and didn't know much about it. But I saw the um the video cover, the image of uh, 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 Kate Hudson not wearing very much in bed with a with a les. But I, honestly, that was uh that is my frank and horrible admission of what a <laughs> greasy 16 year old I was, but is what it is. Also, um, like when I was a, a kid, like a very young kid, I became a bit of a massive and obsessive Guns N' Roses fan. Oh God. Um, so whenever I would think of like rock music for whatever reason, ever since then, like a Gibson Les Paul is, is the only guitar that I ever really associate with, with, with rock music. I've owned two of them. I'm actually just about to build one. Cool. Have a little, uh, Build your own guitar kit. That oh, I'm nice. do, but, but yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think that, that there was something there speaking to my my lizard brain. We can talk later about um, how, in retrospect, the uh, overt sexualization of Penny Lane's character to sell that film is probably a little bit off. But mm, um, yes, that's for later. <laughs> that's for later, yeah. But I watched the film, and I too, it, it, it really struck a chord. I was a big, um, and still am a big fan of a lot of. Um, uh, of rock music of various types um uh at the at the time i think i was sort of i was just getting into maybe like my my kind of middle teen years i i started going through um my dad's old record collection as well because he was um he was well into a lot of this stuff in like the late 60s early 70s and he'd kept a lot of his lps and me and him used to listen to like crosby stills nash and young's deja vu and um uh, Wheels on Fire by Cream, which which shows up later in the the record collection that, that Williams given. So um, yeah, and you know I'd, I'd go to a lot of gigs, and and I think there was a lot of, uh, of of William Miller as a character that I kind of responded to very 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 strongly. And it's a film that I've kind of watched a lot in the years since. So um, yeah, it's it's kind of a real personal favorite of mine. 
Uh, how no, about you, Patrick? I, I'm nowhere near as in depth in this than I'm going to think for from what you both said. Because um, I I think this I was really excited for you to pick this, Gally. So thank you because I haven't seen this film since I believe I was at university, and I mentioned it to you both before. But I remember renting this or te- taken out of the Leeds Metropolitan University Library to watch at uni and I, I keep thinking that maybe I heard you two talking about it when we were at uni I thought oh I've, I've got to see this um I haven't seen it for me Cameron Crowe uh at that point in my life before uni was Vanilla Sky that was my film for, for Cameron Crowe Vanilla Sky re- really opened up my eyes to like imagery and some kind of dream sequences and I used a lot of it um, in their narrative to some of my A-level artwork at the time. I just didn't know this film at all. So I remember watching it at uni, but I, I have no idea why I haven't revisited it. I I think I remembered liking it, and it's been great to revisit it and watch it completely fresh now. Okay. Well, uh, listen, I'm going to... Uh, before I give a plot summary, um, just in case people are not aware of the, the, the sort of the true-to-life story of Cameron Crowe, I'm just going to give a, a small summary of what what actually happened to him and then how that kind of feeds into the film. So Cameron Crowe, when he was 13, uh, submitted an article to a small rock journal called The Door, and they published it. And then like a year later, Cream Magazine, which is a, it's like a na- national publication rock magazine, uh, asked Crowe to write for them. So he's like 14 years old at this point. And then in 1973, he's aged just 16 years old, and Rolling Stone magazine uh, call him up and ask him to write for them. And he goes on tour with Led Zeppelin, the Allman Brothers. Um, you know, he's hanging out with the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, and uh, and many, many more. And uh, and so the story of Almost Famous is his semi-autobiographical story. So it's it's kind of a it's kind of an amalgam of, from from what I can tell that um, the the stories are kind of spread from a few years and a few different tours, but, but yeah, he was out on the road at 15, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think actually 16, I think he was 16 okay. according to, according to the research I've done, but I mean, I can be, you know, proven wrong on that one. And, uh, it's still incredible. It's still absolutely incredible. Um, and it is kind of like you're living the dream, aren't you? At that point, <laughs> you're yeah. on tour with all these rock stars. How crazy can you imagine though, at that age, a being such a good writer, but B, <laughs> my mum wouldn't let me go <laughs> with, a, with a group around like touring no chance I could barely go down the road to play football unless you knew who the football was <laughs> <laughs> I, I would read um, Kerrang! magazine when I was that age oh, Kerrang. and I would have I would have loved to, to you know to, to be you know involved in that but I'm just thinking you know this there's such a kind of nostalgic glow and a glamour to it. And then I just think, well, if I was 16, 17, and I managed to somehow worm my way onto being a writer for Kerrang! and just thinking like, oh, you could be on tour with A and 100 Reasons. (laughs) I fucking love 100 Reasons. But, you know, like it's not quite the same when you're having to go to like the Exeter Cavern and some fucking pub in Hull. (laughs) Yeah, playing uh, playing the sugar mill in Stoke on Trent. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> I think they were. I don't know. It's the journey, isn't it? That's the thing that this film shows yeah. as well. So maybe it would be great because you won't have been to all these places across the country when you're 16. Well, I think um, you know. Before I give, um, I give the actual plot of the film. One of the things that I think is really great 
about this film is it could so easily have been Mark Wahlberg's rock star. What, <laughs> what I, what I, what I like about it, the fact that it's from the perspective of this outsider looking in and this outsider who's a fan. Um, I think it, that's innately what I really love about the film because Spinal Tap kind of ruined that type of film when they most beautifully lampooned, you know, mm-hmm. the rock doc, you know, that kind of story. I can't watch Val Kilmer's The Doors anymore because it just feels like a pastiche. <laughs> I can't watch Val Kilmer's The Doors after Wayne's World 2. So. <laughs> exactly. You can't watch it. Yeah, you're right. Like there's a, um, it's, it's very, it's going to be very difficult to ever make a kind of rags to riches, you know, straightforward rock biopic. Oh, I don't know, Devlin. Was it not a year ago that the Bohemian Rhapsody came out and everyone went, <laughs> and everyone went to see it? <laughs> everyone went to cool. see it. Yeah. Good work, world. But you know what I mean? Like that stereotypical rags to riches story. Yeah. Has been done. And I, what I, what I think is really good about Almost Famous is, like I said, it's about the perspective, um, which may gloss over some of those controversial issues that we will probably touch upon in a minute. But shall I give you the plot to Almost Famous, chaps? Yes, you should. Set in 1973, it chronicles the funny and often poignant coming of age of 15-year-old William Miller, an unabashed music fan who is inspired by the seminal bands of the time. When his love of music lands him an assignment from Rolling Stone magazine to interview the up-and-coming band Stillwater... Fronted by the lead guitarist Russell Hammond, William embarks on an eye-opening journey on the band's tour, despite the objections of his controlling mother. When we're talking about the um the the film, I just wanted to double check which which version of it we've all seen because um I so oh God, I I, uh, the video version that I watched was was the the original theatrical version, and then uh, probably maybe two thousand one two thousand two they released um a DVD version that they called Untitled. And that was a two-disc DVD, and the second disc was um, Cameron Crowe's uh, director's cut. He called it Untitled because he said that, for one thing, he always wanted to call the film Untitled. He thought it would be cool like to name it as if you know an album w- would have been named. Um, okay. And, and the other thing is that he wanted to add all this extra stuff that he couldn't put in into the, uh, the theatrical cut. He wanted people who liked the film to be able to kind of hang out. And he was aware that it made a, a difference to the pacing of the film. But um, basically it was just that because like you say, it was a labor of love and, and he felt like, well, why not just give everyone everything and let them kind of let them make the decision. But what is strange is that the, the extended version uh, has now basically become the, the go-to. It's the only version that's available on Blu-ray as far as I'm aware. Uh, it's the yeah. version that if you watch it, uh, on Sky Cinema, I noticed when I tried to take a look, they play the extended cut. So, um, the difference between the two. Well, is... I watched it on Sky Cinema. Oh, okay. So yeah. So you would have got the, uh, essentially the director's cut, which is, which is interesting. I don't, I, see, I don't know what I'm missing though, like at all. So... Oh no, you've got extra. You have 40 minutes more film. What? I thought it was long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I this is this is going to make for a real duck soup because I've watched the theatrical. Oh, that's uh, well, assuming, that, assuming that everyone would watch the theatrical. Yeah, well, I did watch. Um, I did watch both. So, if anyone is kind of confused, yeah, like I watched both this week. So, if there's a, if if somebody so wants seen, to, uh, okay. Right. Oh yeah, the, the the as we go through, I'll mention 
most of the time it is just a few little extra elements, but sometimes entire sequences were put back into the extended version. So as and when they come up in the plot, I'll, I'll try and kind of differentiate between the two and see whether, you know, whether the additional footage actually added anything. Cause I think there are cases where, um, what it's added in has really helped the film. And then I think there are other times when he's right in that the pacing of a scene has maybe been tinkered with a little and, and, you know, you, you lose like a little bit of timing, a little bit of sharpness. Um, so one of the things that I, I, I wanted to get straight into is <clears throat> Cameron Crowe as a filmmaker, not, and I'm, this is just, not the most, um, you know, not most visionary director in the world. I would think that's probably fair to say, but my God, has he got a distinct point of view and voice that's instantly recognizable, certainly as to me. And one of the things that uh, I always associate with all of his films, including some of his disasters, which we'll definitely talk about, is um, he does feel like the ultimate filmic DJ. Um, you know, like Quentin Tarantino got this rep once Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction had killer soundtracks, but Cameron Crowe has been doing this for far longer and has got, I think, a, a more disparate collection of great songs to to film and in this this film's got loads of them and we'll you know we'll definitely talk about some of the key moments but one of the things that i really love straight away is when uh william's sister the rebellious one (laughs) um played by zoe deschanel who my god i wish there was more of her in the film um but when she leaves the record collection for william one of the things that crow does so well is he manages to write these really profound lines of dialogue that are a little bit cheesy and somewhat pretentious, but I don't know how they they work. They certainly sold, yeah. aren't they? Like she sells that line. Well, uh, what's the what's the line? Is it? Um... Listen, listen to Tommy with a candle burning, and you'll see your entire future. But that's the that's the kind of attachment that, that an eighteen, well, seventeen, eighteen year old does have to music, right? But she says that the music will set him free, because you know we we, we established very soon on who, Francis McDermott, who's uh, a repressive mother, should we say? But mm, I, I don't think that. Actually, I think that's harsh. I think an overprotective mother, t- somewhat. But again, even that is very strange because, like you say, as an overprotective mother, she does let a fifteen-year-old go out on tour with a rock band. She's, she's yeah, yeah. supportive, but, but restrictive but in strange film, ways. And I, I like the way that they explore the difference in how um, Elaine uh, interacts with both kids. We see the, the earlier sequences of the little, of the, when he then finds out that he's 11, little 11 year old, um, 11! William. You shaped the You see that straight away, uh, the whole scene with the pubes, not in the theatrical cut. And I think you lose a lot for that because oh, I feel yeah. like that is Im- imbuing like William as a, as a character with so much kind of like. But it also sets up the gag when he's walking to school and someone goes, Hey pubes. See you later, pubes. <laughs> Do I really like that? Yeah. Frances McDormand's character, Elaine, the mother, she does let him go, but she is overprotective. I, I, the way that I rationalize her thinking is that one, she loses a child. It, it's not in a, yeah. it's not done in an overly dramatic way, but she, you know, Zoe Deschanel goes off. The older sister leaves the home. You know, she says, you're 18. You can do what you want. I can't stop you. She obviously is going to, have she's going to feel that that's already happened once she doesn't want to happen mm. again with William but it's also she's a professor right she's a, a university lecturer 
she's one of those people that's like over-informed, you know, like knows so much about the world that it's actually made her so cautious of it. That's how I see it. She doesn't like what she sees around her of, of like modern popular culture. I think it's that she's, she seems like perpetually disappointed in, yeah. in, yeah, that's it, isn't it? In, in how the world is going and, you know, the, 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 what does she call it? A Valhalla of decadence. I don't think so. Listen to we me. Si- He's a smart, good hearted 15 year old kid with infinite potential. This is not some apron wearing mother you're speaking to. I know all about your Valhalla decadence and I shouldn't have let him go. He's not ready for your world of compromised values and diminished brain cells that you throw away like confetti. Am I speaking to you clearly? Yes, yes, ma'am. If you break his spirit, harm him in any way, keep him from his chosen profession, which is law, something you may not value, but I do, you will meet the voice at the other end of this telephone, and it will not be pretty. Do we understand each other? Uh, yes, ma'am. I didn't ask for this role, but I'll play it. Now go do your best. Be bold, and mighty forces will come to your aid. Goethe said that... It's not too late for you to become a person of substance, Russell. Please get my son home safely. And, uh, she she appears on the director's commentary for the director's cut alongside Cameron Crowe, and she is exactly like that. Who, his mother or Francis McDormand? Um, uh, uh, his mother, uh, um, I think her name is Alice, Alice Crowe. She's she's in the film as well. She appears in it. She well. approved of, uh, of how she was written. Yeah. Apart from one little detail. And she's like, I don't like her walking around a house with no <laughs> shoes on. Yeah. I would never do that. She has to wear shoes in the house or something. Yeah. yeah it's quite funny. But the set of uh, the mother is very easy, simply, isn't it? Because it's when they're walking down that high street and mm. there's someone writing Happy Xmas. Yeah. And she goes, I'm a lecturer. There's no such thing as Xmas. It's Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. <laughs> yeah. And I like that. The setup's immediate. I think mm. it's it's a good way to start and to and show the environment. You see the you see the bond between William and Elaine, and you see the dis you see the disconnect with the with with the sister, especially just that like really devastating line in the car when they uh, when they have the eleven discussion, <laughs> and she says, uh, "You are rebellious and ungrateful of my love." The um one of the things that the um the reveal of of William being eleven at that point, and she says like I uh I, so I skipped you a few few grades. Adolescence is a marketing tool, so don't worry about it. Like some of the <laughs> lines, are line. but it sets up a um it sets up a repeated theme that goes throughout this entire film, and it gets to the heart of it. It gets to the reason why it revisiting it. I I, I genuinely was questioning whether or not I recognised this when I was a kid and I watched it, and I don't think I did is that everything uh, every everything and everyone is an illusion in this and it's getting revealed you know we we peep behind the curtain and it's not what it seems so william thinks he's 13 but he's actually 11 later on he, we meet lester bangs wonderfully played by philip seymour hoffman and william looks up to him and thinks he's this legend and we reveal that he's he's uncool <laughs> you know later on when william um follows stillwater no one is quite what they seem. Penny Lane isn't this, you know, wonderful free spirit. She's actually quite sad and lonely. Russell isn't the guitarist. It's not mystique. even her name. Yeah, this is it. It's, and I love that about this film, watching it this week. And I think as a kid, I was very much the William looking at the these rock stars and this world and just being in awe of it and just being like, you know what, I just want to be a part of this. 
It's, I, I think there's that. And, um, the earlier scenes with Francis McDormand now, um, also, I think hit a lot heavier. Um, they put a lot of that back in. And like I say, I think it really makes a big difference to the film. I guess, um, what they wanted to do pacing wise originally was that they just wanted to get William out on the road on the tour bus having hijinks, you know, you wanted to be along for the ride. But I think when you see the home life and you see, um, like how, how much kind of William must mean to Elaine considering, you know, he's kind of all she has left. Um, and what a big sacrifice it was for her to let him go and how hard it must be for her. Like that she plays it so fantastically well throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah. But I think again, just being a little older and, and, and seeing the kind of understanding a little more about, I mean, obviously, uh, nobody has been foolish enough to allow me to have children of my own at this point, but, um, certainly being older and, 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 you know, your, your relationship with your own parents matures and you kind of, you understand how rough it was for them. I think that just like, it adds just more layers to the, to the thing that maybe weren't there, like when you were 17, 18, 19. And you did just want to rush out on the road, like you say. And uh, the way that you do rush out, or the way that you want to feel that you want to rush out, is when William plays, they, they, you know, he discovers those records that his sister's left for him. And we get the Who playing, and we, and we, uh, we fade into him now as a as a 15-year-old played by... Now, I have not double-checked this, but I do not want to get this one wrong. Fugit? Patrick Fugit? Oh fuck yeah. it! I, well, I, I mean, <laughs> if it's if it's like the like the Latin, you would think it would be fugit. Oh no, you went for a third. Okay, fine. So it's fugit. I, I honestly, I did not want to touch that one. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Patrick Fugit. Now, I will confess, not seen him in a, a whole lot of stuff outside of. I remember he played a cop in Gone Girl. Yeah, that's, that's the only thing I really know him from. He was, um, so short, shortly after Almost Famous, he was in another, um, because obviously this was quite a big film and, uh, uh, people would have got work from it. And he was cast by, uh, Jonas Ackerland in a film called Spun. If you remember that one, Jason Schwartzman. And, uh, uh, I remember uh, it, but I, I, I remember the title, but I can't think, I don't remember the film. It's, it... I remember liking it at the time and I haven't seen it in many years. I, f- I get the impression I'd find it annoying now. Is it Brittany Murphy? But, um, it's what, sorry? Is Brittany Murphy in it? Or I thought it been... was Mina Savari, but you might be right. It might be Brittany Murphy. They sort oh, of melt, they yeah. melded in my brain. Uh, Patrick Fugit plays one of the, one of the kids. They're all basically, uh, uh, young freewheeling teenagers who are on meth and there's a, a pre comeback Mickey Rourke in it. Mm. As a meth cook and, um, what's his name? Uh, um, Eric Roberts turns oh, up uh, and he's wearing, of course, uh, Eric I, Roberts he's wearing a, <laughs> I think he wears a dressing gown for the entire film. It's, yeah. uh, it's a little bizarre, but, um, so I th- he had a little run in these kind of edgy ish indie comedy drama teen early to mid. He was in wrist cut as a love story as well, which is kind of a similar thing and a very stylized, um, mm. And then yeah, he sort of disappeared for a bit. He had a run on a, a TV show a couple of years back called Outcast. Oh, okay, okay. Um, what do we what do we think of him then? Because this is they, this is one of those you know classic Hollywood stories of you know you pluck someone out of 
basic obscurity and shoved them in a big mm. big hollywood film which this is i mean okay it's a it's a middling budget film i think it's around 60 odd million but it's cameron crowe coming off jerry Maguire with tom cruise biggest film star in the world yeah. so you know this is a big deal and they do put him in i mean what do you think what do you think it's of his virtually every scene yeah, well, is it, yeah i think he's great in this uh personally um i thought he brought the whole thing and the tone of the film that i think was really important to crow I, f- I felt like in that semi-autobiographical sense that he wanted to bring his his innocent eyes to the whole thing. And when I'm watching uh, Fugit, I do feel that that's what we get, don't we? Like his face is a proper canvas, like exploring the world and mm. taking it all in. And you can see him enjoying it or questioning his own, uh, you know, when he's, when he's brought into question. But he... I think he does a lot of work with his eyes and his expression and his body language. He can be quite shy when he wants to be, or you can see the awkward rigidness when he stands up to Penny Lane later on and and on the plane when he finds his voice. I think he's brilliant in this person. I, I would I would definitely agree, especially watching it back this time out. It had been a couple of years and um, maybe I'd sort of forgotten because he has quite um, uh, an unusual and awkward line delivery sometimes. It could be perceived as being a little bit kind of wooden or, or inexperienced. But I think for me, I, I, I agree with you completely that, um, he's, he's just so kind of authentically yeah. a 15 year old. And it's, it's quite rare that you would get somebody of an appropriate age playing a teenager in a film. Usually it would be some kind of, you know, awkwardly chiseled 26 year old who just happens to look a little bit young, but he is so clearly going through everything the character's going through at exactly the same time. And there's nice little touches, you know, the, the, the moment when, uh, Penny Lane asks him if he, if he's going to Morocco and he says, yes. And she says, really? And it's the, the ask me again. It's like a really nice little moment. I agree with everything you're saying. And I think it, the, the awkward line delivery, I think it actually really does help. Like you say, it's that, it is that energy of somebody who genuinely is, on a film set, probably like, what the fuck? I have no idea what I'm doing, but yeah, play, I'm play thoroughly cool, enjoying myself cool, nonetheless play cool, play cool. because I'm, yeah, play cool, play cool. And he is an outsider. These people are all cool and he is not. And I think, um, I think that really does work. And like you say, Cameron Crowe got a bit of a history of working with younger kids. You know, the child from Jerry Maguire is phenomenal. Um, and, and here he is doing it again with, uh, with Fugit. Listen, we would we would be remiss to not talk about the Hoff, the real Hoff, uh, playing Lester Bangs. Who so Cameron Crowe's real, real mentor was? Well, Russell Hoff came Seymour Hoff. <laughs> no, but Hoffman always ends the party. No, it's um, he's phenomenal in this, as he is in everything. You know, I've just and we may do it in the future. I uh, at the weekend I watched uh, the talent of Mr. Ripley. And he's just so good in it. And he was just doing this, wasn't he? He was just doing this before Hollywood realized that, you know what, we need to stick this guy in a leading man role. Um, him as a supporting side character is just going to steal a film every time, isn't he? And he comes and swoops in in this one and steals every scene. And he's the one you remember. He's the one I always remembered. And it's, it's again, it's the combination of Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance and Cameron Crowe's script. When he describes, when he says music, 
it, it chooses you. I'm like, oh yeah, that is such a great line. Like, uh, I don't know. It, it makes me feel all gooey inside again now. Like I should be hardened to it and be like, no, it doesn't. In fact, Capital Radio tells me what to fucking listen to. But actually, no, he's right. Music does choose you. It's just great. Music. Yeah, you know, true music. Uh, not just rock and roll. It chooses you. You know, it lives in your car or, or alone, listening to your headphones you know, with the vast scenic bridges and angelic choirs in your brain. You know, it's a place apart from the vast, benign lap of America. Did you know that the letter by the box tops was a minute and 58 seconds long? It means nothing. Nil. But it takes them less than two minutes to accomplish what Jethro Tull takes hours to not accomplish. You see, this, this is fatuous, pseudo-blubber. You know, I mean, which is fine, but voiced it off as art, you know, or the doors. Uh, Jim Morrison? He's a drunken buffoon, posing as a poet. I like the doors. Ah, give me the guess who. Come on, they got the courage to be drunken buffoons, which makes them poetic. Throughout the film, I think there's definitely, I think what Cameron Crowe does a really good job of, for me, who's not quite into this is or, or well um well versed in this film as you are and, and music and, or whatever it, I, I definitely got the sense or the narrative that he wants to portray that is this is they say it there's actually a repeated line of, of the real world and this was one of those examples of the real world at the beginning and it's like right we've stopped talking about music uh you know do you want to lift you know it, it becomes the reality and i think I think the way he constructs those real world opportunities to uh, remind the characters, to remind us in, in the narrative, in the, in the plot and the direction is very clever. And that's one of those moments and it raises a laugh. And it's, I think it's attention to detail uh, very early on and setting it all up. And you've got the mother to remind you about home. You've got these real world moments that bring them back down and remind that this is kind of a fantasy, really. And I think he looks at this world as a fancy world. I'm, I'm guessing he's it must be hard as an adult to relive and to tell a tale through those young eyes because you can remember them. You can you can, you can you know, pretend that you're seeing things for the first time again when you're an adult. But to, to actually convey it with that innocence, I think he's done a terrific job. Well, it also feeds into his sensibilities, though, Patrick. He's always been. In, in in all of his films, an eternal optimist, and everything is. He's a yes person. He's a yes person. Yeah, maybe a child of John. You know, a child of John Hughes, and and watching those early Spielberg yeah. films. You know, you can you can the one director that I think that he reminded me of was Mike Nichols, okay. The Graduate. I get a real sense that Cameron Crowe was a big fan of Mike Nichols' right. work, just because just the way that he shoots. The way that he's um he's an actor's director, you can tell like the oh, that, some of the, the way that he yeah. composes the scenes. There's nothing flashy about any of his stuff, which is why I said he's not he's not a visionary. You're not going to mm. watch it and be like, oh yeah, look at that camera work. Like some people might. Yeah, he definitely yeah. blocks for for performance. And what I love in the interaction between um, Lester Bangs and William in the diner is the way that. Lester Bangs basically tells us exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> you're going to make friends with them. They're going to get you drinks. You're going to get laid. They're going to fly around the world. And then, like you said, Patrick, then he gives the reality. They're not your friends. 
you know, they want to, they want you to write sanctimonious stuff. God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. You're going to meet girls. They're going to try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs. And I know it sounds great. These people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, and you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real. Right? And then right. it just becomes an industry of cool. You're right in, in the, the amount that, that he can steal a film with so little screen time. That's He did four days and apparently had the flu the whole time. Is he wearing a significant T-shirt in the... Hmm. Uh... Oh, the, the Detroit Sucks shirt. Detroit Sucks. <laughs> so I apparently that was something that, that Lester Bangs used to wear all the time. Now, the, um, so he was from uh, San Diego, which is where William Miller is from, and Cream Magazine was based in Detroit. So that was where he lived. And I think he was just kind of a contrarian asshole, like in a fun way, but that yeah. was kind of a shtick. Yeah, that that was basically just a t-shirt he used to wear all the time. You say Crow's not like a visionary, you know, it's more an actor's maybe performance piece and allow the actors the 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 camera work and you know around performance rather than your visuals gunny. But he's got an eye for detail, I think. Whoever's production designer on here, I'm sure they've had a close relationship in creating this as authentic because everything looks legit. That record shop, the, the the radio is full of records, and it looks like you could flick through. I believe I could pick up any one of them and play it. And it, I feel like the film, that the Polaroids, the the memorabilia, that that opening section. I think he really wanted to, I, I don't know, recreate the seventies, and it, it looks looks great to me. The detail, the costumes, the the props are all yeah. really really um really breathes in this film, really really creates the atmosphere. The hotels have their own distinct, that they are hotels, but, you know, they're, they're 1970s hotels, and I completely believe everywhere that they are. It feels really authentic. And when I said he's not a visionary director, you're right about the, the attention to detail, Patrick. I guess I just meant more flashy camera camera work, you know, mm. moves and sweeps and stuff like that. Certainly in this film, he doesn't, he experiments more in Vanilla Sky for obvious yeah. reasons, because it's yeah, yeah, yeah. a lucid dream. But there, there was a shot in this film near the end when they're in New York. I think him and Penny are walking through um, Central Park, and it's a big, wide angle establisher of Central Park. And I was like, "Whoa, we haven't seen anything like this in this film for an establishing shot, um, this high, wide, and mighty thing with buildings towering over it." And it, it was really effective because it was. Um, again, I think I, I think he's he has this kind of ability to show where they are in this and it's the detail because when, when we went to new york i think we went in a car and over a bridge or we're inside a plane or in the we're in the vehicle that shot really like wowed me in a way because it, i don't think the film had much of that going on uh i don't know whether you noticed it um well i, I hadn't until you mentioned it but you're right and like the the point of the film there is 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 the first time that they are out like you say, in the real world. In the real world. And the light is kind of flat and grey. It's like that really yeah, early morning light. Different. She's all messed up because she's had to, you know, be pumped. Oh, God, don't ever <laughs> stump um, my stomach, my God. John Toll was the cinematographer, um, which I think is... Uh, you're going you're gonna to get a lot of, of very 
wonderful and beautiful images but everything again was was towards creating a mood it wasn't about creating mm. a look it was about creating a mood and and couching the characters in the right kind of environment so when they're on the bus on doris uh they built a um a hanging track and dolly kind of like the the sort of thing that they used to use back in the old silent film era uh where okay. they would basically hang the camera from the from the ceiling um because they didn't want the scenes on the bus to be really jittery and to have that kind of traveling okay. feel because the bus was was their home so they wanted the bus to feel like a cocoon. They wanted it to feel safe. And if like the bus is constantly bouncing around and it's the soul and, of the band. Yeah. So, um, that, that was the, the one thing that it did. But what I like about that is that again, it's like, you know, they didn't do it to show off. They did it because no, it made the scenes variation feel different. In the film of, of how this is shot. There, there's documentary yeah. elements. When, when they go on stage at the beginning, they have the little huddle. There's little edits of, a flashlight picking up a detail of yeah, a, footstep, yeah. a guitar, a, a drumstick. That is lovely. that is a really really nice sequence, and the the way they have that um that shot of the crowd, which is taken from almost like stage level, and the lights going down and the flashbulbs going off. I do. Mm-hmm. I, I did feel like I'm I'm amazed that Crow wasn't some kind of Paul Greengrass background in you know a documentary type filmmaker as well because. I felt like there was more of that coming almost famous when I watched it this time because hmm. there is elements of it. And I think there is, I suppose it comes from journalism anyway. Yeah. Living amongst them. It gets, um, it gets a little madder, maybe not in the shooting style, but certainly in the editing style, the, the further he kind of delves in and you have that real kind of turning point, um, after he's been deflowered. Um, and, and he, uh, uh there's the when we, no, as we're when we're praising Patrick Fugit, I think that's probably his his really pivotal scene, which is when he goes to knock on Russell's door and and he tells him to please go the fuck away. Oh, and he sticks his middle finger up. Yeah, oh, and he's really furious. <laughs> he's kicking the laundry, and then he just sits and he starts crying, and he's kind of yeah. hiding his face. And you realize this is like a, it's a child, and he's in over his head, and he's alone, and he's and he's you know stuck here. And, because, uh, and the good times of his missing graduation and yeah. his deadline coming up, and it, it's a lot of pressure for a kid. Yeah, and from that point, when they then go to uh, Swingo's Celebrity Inn, where we see the Bowie guy, oh, yeah. um, the editing from there, I don't know if you but within that kind of sequence when they're at Swingo's, it's like the editing is kind of it's too fast for him, or it's too fast for us almost as an audience. We're trying to keep up with it, and you have uh, Jeff Bebe Bebe. BB running around the, the hotel room with, um, <laughs> with, uh, 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 Anna Paquin and you've got Russell and, um, and Penny kind of with the champagne bottle and it feels like really chaotic. Well, we'll get back into the story and get into that, that hotel. So he's, he's managed to kind of get his way into the, the gig, do the, do the assignment for Lester Bangs and Cream Magazine. And it's, it's supposed to be for Black Sabbath. But then he manages to, um, he meets Penny Lane and the Band-Aids and gets in with Stillwater. And, and one of my favorite bits and one of the, one of my favorite moments in his performance, uh, Patrick Fugitz is, uh, is when he, he seems so proud of himself to introduce oh, yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. into this, what he thinks he's introducing Russell to Penny Lane. Cause he's like, yeah. I'm, I'm in here. Like I know someone that you don't. And then the, the sudden realization that he's like, is that, <laughs> is that when the handshakes in the foreground and he's looking up at them lovingly? Like, yeah, really nice shot. 
it's a really it's a really nice shot and he's got like a really wonderfully expressive uh face and smile and and then he realizes oh um yeah i'm still not in but then at the end he's like he's he's sort of saying everyone's name isn't he like see you later jeff see you later da, 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 da. And, yeah. rusty, rusty the wheel Oh, frosty, that's it. That it doesn't matter how old you are. Everyone's had that moment of, you know, imposter syndrome and you want to just like, listen, I, I know everyone's name now. Please, I'm one of you, right? And, uh, I think he sells that, you know, wonderfully. And, and one of the, one of, we're going to quickly talk about Jason Lee because my favorite bit is him. And this is, it all comes down to the illusion of these guys being these rock gods, but actually they've got not much to say. So when he's asking him about <laughs> what's rock and roll? And Jeff Bebe, played by Jason Lee, is trying to describe rock and roll, and he's just going round the the trees, just sort of saying, "Yeah, it's about the buzz, and the chicks, and the buzz. Oh, this guy, and the whatever is a byproduct <laughs> of the buzz. Pure <laughs> waffle, and uh, and it's the first glimpse into you know this world not being quite what." you know, what William thought it was going to be and what we normally associate with, you know, musicians. Normally, you know, they're so expressive and you listen to a song and you're like, oh man, it's so deep. But now these guys just, they just write music, play gigs, uh, go with chicks. Should we get into the chicks right away? Because there's a line between, there's a discussion between Penny Lane and William. They have an instant connection. They're from the same town. She she's introduced nicely, isn't she? She's introduced as a star. Yes, yeah. The lighting, the mm. coat, the glasses. She comes out from the she shadows. Looks she looks happy and yeah. It's yeah. um. It, 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 this is our. This is the one that you're going to pay the most attention to, which is pretty crazy considering you've got Bijou Phillips and Anna Paquin. She she says to William like, uh, so and you it's that whole duality between reality and fantasy. Like, how old are you really? It's like, oh, I'm sixteen. It's like. Me too. No, is it seventeen, sixteen? No, oh, yeah, 17, yeah. 16. eight, eighteen. And and me too. And then how old yeah, are we? How old are we really? really? Now here is a a problem that they've um that Cameron Crowe has addressed in the Broadway show. Yes, there is a Broadway musical of Almost Famous. Oh, really? Um, and they've cast the William character with exactly who you wouldn't want to cast, which is some Jonas Brother looking person who's not a not a geek, not uncool. Too smiley, too confident. Too, yeah. too good. Well, you know, without sounding like I'm, I'm being disparaging to Patrick Fugit, too bloody conventionally good looking. Like, you know, that's not the character. But anyway, that's by the by. They, they address the Penny Lane of it all because I took it that she is 50, she is 16, as she says, that she's no, not lying to no, him. She's 20, I, th- I thought she was coaxing him out. Yeah, exactly. Ah. She knows what she knows exactly what he is, and she yeah yeah. But I also do believe that she is yeah. young, yeah. and especially some of the other characters I think mm. are very young. Anna Paquin, because I yeah, I don't know. We, we, we're talking about the chicks. Sorry about that. But the the band aids. Um, well, there are uh, you know it's a byproduct of the buzz. <laughs> exactly. The film skirts it, it doesn't shy away from some of the. The clearly the more controversial aspects of living and being surrounded in the music industry or that, that world of touring. So these band-aids are these young girls that follow, even though they say, you know, that we're in it for the music. 
um i think one of them even like outrightly says like you know just uh blowjobs and you're like mm, okay it's played for laughs but then she immediately like you know she's saying that we're here for the music we're not throwing ourselves at them because they're celebrities and then uh black sabbath limo they, calls up ah! and they just start screaming for us <laughs> and I, I guess i guess what i'm saying is you can't not have that in but i think crow almost he he, he sits on the fence to the detriment of the film, I think. And I wonder if, if a director who didn't have his sensibilities and also didn't actually see this world and, and romanticize about it, because he does. I mean, the whole film, you know, he does. Even though he's peeking behind the curtain and we're seeing that, that rock and roll isn't quite what you think and he's taking it apart, he still, mm. in a way, glamorizes it and he doesn't want to take it down fully. Yeah. Maybe someone with a, a, a sort of more of an edge would maybe tackle the Penny Lane and Russell dynamic because it never sat well with me when I was a kid. But but because the ride is so fun, I kind of just didn't think about it. And I think that's a major consequence, really. I think I know what you're saying about could they have done more, could have maybe been a bit darker. But I feel like Crow is maybe making... I don't know, it's his retelling, it's hard, isn't it? It's like you're reading something and sometimes when you read things that are quite shocking, they're 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 just there, they're just facts and it's quite um almost stale and sober. And I did find when um when you think about it, we talked about her age and she's very young as Penny Lane or Lady, as we come to know her. It's quite upsetting. It's quite an upsetting environment. She's given her life to it. I've no idea how she fucking affords to follow them around, but whatever. Um, and if she's fallen in love with someone and we see Crow deliberately puts in that poker scene where they're, uh, the girls are betted in a bet and given, given to another band. I can't remember what they're called. It's Humble Pie. Humble Pie, which I don't know. 50 bucks and a case of Heineken. And you know, like there are reminders in it that there are souls at times. You know, it, it's he needs to. Philip Seymour Hoffman warned him: you can't be make friends with them. You've got to keep your distance. But Russell's an asshole. You know, that's why Jason Lee doesn't really like him, and there's bits about that. But I think Russell needs to learn it. And at the end, we do have, you know, Penny uh, Lady gets her own back, and when he wants to see her, good for her. She she doesn't want to see him, but she doesn't tell him, and she sends him William's way, and it's all the lesson that he needs. It's its consequence and i think maybe the jeopardy of treating lives and life in the real world so frivolously this way like his mother warned there are warnings throughout the whole film from his mother as well on the phone tells him you've got a chance to become good so i do i do think that of their relationship it's it's a cagey one i think i do think that within the film and you know we're with william we never really see what's behind the door the bedroom door because she says, doesn't she? You don't know what he says to me in no. private, and it, yeah. it, it it's a, it's a deliberate ploy that we're not given all the detail, but we do see the effect it has on them, whether that's Russell or Leslie or Lady and William. So I do, I do get that it's an emotional like ride. This thing, and you know, on the road together, close proximity with all these people. I think it it, it there is a telling. A statement within it about how how it can affect you gals is it um is it is it more the um 
the the sort of the the shift society like in terms of society as far as uh the the things that were considered acceptable and 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 fine at that time and and when you look back on them that they are kind of genuinely unpleasant it's free love you know, the, and drugs and sharing. Yeah, well, more specifically, like, it's, I mean, free love and drugs and sharing is is whatever it is, you know, if that's what you want to do, then then fill your boots. But I think it's when there are, like, teenagers involved, yeah, yeah. genuine teenagers, and, and you read about, I mean, um, uh, uh, Cameron Crowe's a, a huge Led Zeppelin fan. There's a lot of Led Zeppelin in this, and I'm sure everyone by now knows the, the story about Jimmy Page. But I would I would say that, that sort of stuff isn't really for better or worse, isn't going to have any place in a film like this. And, and I think he, no, no, and I, I, he was, he was reporting from what he saw and from his perspective. And I guess, um, uh, uh, if you were to make this film now, I think, uh, I think it would be, it would be by, it would, by necessity, it would be a lot kind of more forensic and and it wouldn't it certainly wouldn't be painted as kind of honey hued and and uh and, and cheerful as this one is so but this uh, narrative's nice isn't it like like a book we, we are it's william's narrative yeah like i said when she vomits in the bath he stays in the other room and we see it from that angle and i think from a director's point of view i think it's a very clever point of view yeah film. one that we it, also it, get it, the uh my, the my, my sherry amour and he's looking at her <laughs> yeah. you know He's observing them, and it, it, it's yeah. observation, and it's it's a smart one. I think you've uh, you've hit the nail on the head, Devlin. I mentioned it before in my opening uh, gambit for the film about perspective, and I think that is the thing that kind of gives us a little bit of a pass to the fact that Crow doesn't explore it any deeper than almost surface level. Like you said, her coat is always covering the windows, so we can never see. And it's William observing from afar. He's never he's never invited into mm-hmm. that relationship between uh, Russell and and Lady or Penny Lane. But I guess I guess what it does speak to, and you were touching upon it, is that twenty years ago, as a younger as a younger viewer, I'm watching it with William's perspective being my own almost because I'm very inexperienced in the world and just watching it as a as a kind of romantic tale yeah. fantasy. As I'm older now, I'm I'm actually adopting Lester Bang's uh, perspective in a way, and and Francis McDormand's. And I guess that is why watching it this week, having not seen it for over a decade, um, that's probably why it, it it didn't sit well with me on this viewing. But it shouldn't be um, it shouldn't be a barrier to entry. I think it's just more of a um, you know, if you're revisiting this film and it meant a lot to you um, when you were a kid, then um, then you might you might have to wrestle with that. But I guess it speaks to progress, right? Progress in society and progress as an individual. Mm. You know, I've grown, society's grown. The film has mm. remained in 2000. Yeah, I guess that's what I was alluding to at, at the start when I was saying that it's it was uncomfortable uh, in retrospect how readily they sexualized Kate Hudson's character for the for the film poster and it's a good job that they didn't really roll with that poster that's not you know because uh it, it is it's um it's, it's selling the film on a thing that's not within the film i think you're right in that um he he gives everyone a depth he gives everyone a motivation which is great 
even the band manager, and mm-hmm. then you get Jimmy Fallon's band manager, and it's, they're all they all get their part. Even the the silent drummer, he 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 again does a lot yeah, with his, gets his, his expressions, and he gets his moment. But you know, he's reacting to it all, and he's still a part of it. And it, yeah, I think you said at the very beginning, Gally, it's quite a quotable film. I think Crow does enjoy like pontification and deep and meaningful music chat and that suits the mm. 70s film and what we've come to learn about uh that time and expression and there's a lot of that in here and it works doesn't it it you said it earlier it, it could be corny it could be uncomfortable and cringy but I, I like the deep and meaningful stuff in this film i think it really works and it's it's um I think it's more for you, knowing you two. I think this is more how you you saw music when you were younger, and it, it really talking to you that way. Whereas I became it was always film and film music for me. That's what spoke to me. So I didn't have these chats about actual like music or my friends at school. I, I don't know. I don't remember having these conversations with them when I was. Just, I, had, I had one music friend from the age of like fourteen, yeah. fifteen onwards, through through all the way through like maybe into. We met a few more people in sixth form, but towards the end of like secondary school, it was basically me and one other guy, and we would just share CDs back and forth. And yeah, I, th- I think we had the the same thing. Like when you see the transition from eleven year old to fifteen year old William Miller, and it's done via um, him writing all the names of all his favorite bands on his bag and on his yeah. books in biro and. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. I, I had to, every every flat surface I had was was some band logo. There was a real boom in in seventies nostalgia when in the in the early noughts, late nineties. I remember mm. like bands like the Datsuns, who were this New Zealand band who just ripped Led Zeppelin off. Yeah, um, there was another one, uh, the Hives, ripped off the Rolling Stones. And it was all this kind of seventies. Well, it was like all it was all yeah, post yeah. Strokes when it he had the Strokes first. I don't know if you guys remember that. I used to wear a a, a, a knitted green tie. I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> like fucking Eric Stoltz. <laughs> <laughs> I used to wear that out to the. To Please the, tell me you still have it. To, I do. I do still have it. I wore flares though in, when I was at uni. I had a pair of flares. Yeah, that's what I mean. Oh, they were, it was, it was a thing. That was the music at the time. Boot cut jeans and yeah. flares were like, I think, yeah. I think me and you, Gally, we both had, uh, uh, like moleskin brown jackets. <laughs> jacket. Yeah, I remember Gally, I but I don't remember yours. <laughs> <laughs> what was your back? What was your, um, satchel? Oh, I had um, I had like a, a comic book satchel. Yeah, I've still got them. I, I had a Superman one, a Spider Man one. They were bed sheets that were then um, <laughs> turned into bags. Which, by the way, I'm thinking about giving away <laughs> one on the I show. So, that, yeah. so stand by. But yeah, the um, whoa, yeah, it was a thing though, right? It was a thing, and um, I think they say it goes in in cycles of twenty years, don't they? So like the eighties was a big thing in the in the late, you know, sort of ten years ago, everyone's mm. doing everything. But the eighties and the seventies have kind of you know, gone away, but and now the night. I also thought the film's nostalgia had a lot to do with the Polaroids as well. I think um, that would have opened up a generation to Polaroids because that they are quite cool in this film. And for for people, I don't know, in two thousand, if you've never Polaroids weren't really a thing there. I only really knew them from. um, I remember wanting a Polaroid because of film continuity pictures. You know, people take photos now on digital cameras, but back then they took it on. 
Polaroids and it had, I was obsessed with film Polaroids, like looking through the archives of, um, uh, there's some from Batman, I remember, you know, taking on set nice. photos for the continuity or costume or hair and makeup. I, I fucking love that shit. But almost famous was, you know, it's, um, your photo album, instant photos. And I, I remember watching it yesterday, uh, to watch again and thinking i bet this did a boost for polaroids again that nostalgia i bet cameron loved it and when he's finally writing the piece at the end and he's you see cutaways of the polaroids they look fucking ace and they really do it's very popular now and that's that's your 15 year cycle or whatever it is that you're talking about do you want to know um sliding doors casting so who could have played penny lane Brad he was in Pitt. line for it. No, no, no. That was uh, that was Russell Hammond. Brad Pitt playing Penny Lane would have been quite interesting, but no. <laughs> Maybe, it definitely um... would have uh, put to bed any of these issues we're having about her potential <laughs> <Yeah>. age. <laughs> so for Penny Lane. <laughs> so, also, no, I can only imagine that she would have been constantly eating fruit throughout the film. Uh, no, I have no idea, Gally. You're gonna have to. Natalie Portman was in line when it was Brad I was going to say Natalie Russell Portman because I was thinking so, of who was the age at the time okay the other one which I think would have been very interesting uh Sarah Polly which um which she was actually cast oh, and okay. then she dropped out well she was in a, a really great film um a Canadian film called The Sweet Hereafter which is uh, an Adam McGoyan film which um was a couple of years before but she's got, she's very um she's very serious I've got I've got mixed feelings about Kate Hudson's performance in this, despite her being nominated for an Oscar for it. But the moment that I do think she really shines is is actually that bit after the, she's been sold to Humble Pie for, um, you know, fifty dollars and a case of Heineken. She she almost does like a model shoot pose, and the way that Cameron Crowe shoots her, everything, the lights glimmering off her, you know, a beautiful blonde locks, and she's got this smile the sort of smirk that she pulls and um in that moment i do i do believe her to be the the star of the film but uh, i thought that a birthday party as well yes so yeah, when, yeah. when he says when um jimmy fallon's i've forgotten his name when he says sorry the plane's not bigger she you can see her whole temperament drop mm. Uh, like a, like a and stone, she and she it's... can't she can't catch Russell's eye, <sighs> or he looks hard, he's really it? guilty, but he knows he can't do anything about mm. it. And mm. there's um, it's there's a, a few really kind of pivotal moments of just really great work of people just looking at each other. Mm-hmm. And for for all Cameron Crowe can write really great long verbose speeches and stuff. There's there's a lot done with with kind of no dialogue whatsoever. And uh, can we can we talk about a scene and and a performer that I've always liked and I, I I always used to think that he got short shrift but um I listened to a podcast with Billy Crudup and um he was I always thought that Hollywood kind of just never never liked him or something or didn't give him the vehicles to become a the star that I thought he could have been based on this performance and based on uh, an independent film that Devlin introduced me to which was Jesus's Son. Um, but actually, he was just someone who wants to be an actor, doesn't really want to play the, the Hollywood game of, you know, in, in, inviting them into his life and understanding what he does outside of being an actor. And that is why he, he's, he's been a side character for the majority of his career. He is phenomenal as Russell Hammond when he just, after, after he's broken up, after the t-shirt scene, 
and he just wants to find something real. And when he's walking around that yeah. house and he's talking to those kids and he's like, real, real. <laughs> this really yeah. picks up that fake, uh, it looks like a reptile. He's like, real. No, it's a little tiny. Switches the light off. His performance in that whole party scene. And then, like, again, another bit where I think Crow kind of pulls back from showing us, you know, real drugs. It's just him drinking out of a plastic cup and someone saying, hey, it's acid. But when he's jumping yeah. around in that party, I believe he's on drugs. It's mm. absolutely brilliant. I can see why Brad Pitt left the project because he's, he's a character that's built up and then cut off at the knees because he's got, he's not really got much substance. And you said it earlier, Patrick, he's a bit of a dickhead. He's manipulating William virtually yeah. at every yeah. single turn, so, whether yeah, he knows it or the, not. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. He knows he's seduced yeah. by it. And it's, I do love it when his mum speaks to him on the phone and afterwards he goes, your mum, Kind of freaked me out then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you really feel it. It, it really takes him out of his character. And it's, um, but Crudup does yeah. a good job there because that phone call might be his, one of his strongest scenes because he, again, it's, it's subtle and it's, it, it's, he's young. He's a young guy is Russell. And for him to get a bollocking because he's living mm. this frivolous life with a, you know, he's manages his mates. He hasn't really got any want to control him. And for someone of authority to speak to him on the phone like that, I think um, it's a really good, clever scene because it does show, again, the real world. And Crudup, who's, you know, enjoyed, I think after that phone call, it starts to go downhill from, you know, and Leslie comes back and it's all revealed uh, and all of that. But uh, yeah, the way he acts on the phone, like, yeah, yes, ma'am. He's taken a bollocking. And when they huddle after that, he, yep. he barely sings along to it and it, I thought Crudup was great in this film. Uh, you know, he, he's, he looks great. He looks handsome. He, 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 I like the clothes that he wears, the baggy shirts and the way he, he looks cool, looks, Patrick. I mean, he, he looks he, cool he, as yeah, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, the way he is kind of, you know, fucking with everyone throughout, if it weren't for the fact that he is like really magnetic and yeah. really charming, it would just play as really skeevy and you would, you would, dislike him the entire premise of the film is and it, and it is a good thing that it, it's not brad pitt because that role does not need that star quality it needs uh it needs an ensemble cast and it needs crud up there and you know it, it it's i'm glad it happened that way brad pitt well, tends to be a, a little bit more remote like he he's pulled he's always got like way more of a kind of veil well, i think he'd be a bit more removed wouldn't he uh in his performance and maybe a bit more he tends to not have that level of like warmth yeah, 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 to yeah. it, to, to a lot of his performances. The the problem with Brad Pitt, and you you hit upon it, is he's a star, right? So he comes with baggage, good or bad, that you've seen him in other films, and you know he's Brad Pitt. So yeah. you're you're absolutely right. Russell Hammond needed to be a guitarist with mystique that we don't know much about, and then we just get these little glimpses of him throughout the whole film. And and you know Williams desperately trying to interview him. He we want to know about him just like William wants to know what he's got to say it works beautifully as well with the dynamic with the band that it isn't brad pitt because then it's so obvious that, that everyone's lesser to him but in the yeah. film it kind of subtly creeps up on you because everyone keeps saying oh he's he could i think penny lane says they're all great but he could be special yeah that's right but apart from a few lines like that everything else is done mm. through his own magnet you know his own magnetic performance but then it comes to like the only film i actually did properly remember when i first watched it at uni was the plane sequence they hired a their private plane mm -hmm. the new manager 
unrecognizable Jimmy, early Jimmy Fallon, who, um, I love his opening statement in this, anyway, it's, Jimmy Fallon. But on that plane, and this sort of reaching some turbulence, and like, he's laughing at, there's so much going on in that scene performance wise that I think needs to be celebrated because at the beginning, you've got Russell Howard, he's laughing it off. I think he's singing a song from a band that died in a plane crash. Peggy's oh, he's, he's singing Peggy's. You know, he's a dick and he's living up to it because he's having a laugh. But the slow realization around them when the air, when the pilot comes out, what a scene this is. Mm. And he kicks it off, doesn't he? Like, if I, I want to tell you I love you all. And it's, it's almost the perfect opening line in that sequence for him. Cause he's only thinking his character, he's someone who only really thinks about himself. So of course he'd say something that makes them all like him and love him, but it kicks off. I think Jason Lee does a good job. You can see he's frustrated with him. Like he's all, he could almost say, why the fuck you say that? Why don't you just apologize for real things? If something should happen, maybe I never said this enough. I love all of you. I once hit a man in Dearborn, Michigan. I hit and run. I hit him, just kept on going. I don't know if he's alive or dead, but I'm sorry. Not a day goes by and I don't see his face. Oh my god! I love you all too, you're like family to me Especially since Mana left me And listen fellas, I just want you to know If, if I took an extra dollar or two here and there It's, it's because I knew I'd earned it Yeah, I slept with Marta Dick I did too I waited until you broke up <laughs> Me too uh, I also slept with Leslie When you were fighting You slept with Jeff? Yeah, but it didn't count It was the summer we decided to be free of all rules and you say you love me. I don't love you, man. I never did. None of us love you. You act above us, you always have. Finally the truth. You just held it over us like you might leave. Like we're lucky to be with you. And we had to live with it, man. I had to live with you, and now I might die with you, and it's not fucking fair. Please, enough. No, no, I did as well, mate. And it's... it's... It's peppered with these lovely comedic beats as well. You know, Jimmy Fallon, I uh, I hit a guy. Oh my god! I see <laughs> his face every night. <laughs> just when Russell and Jeff are having their fallout, and and Jeff just says, "I don't love you, man. I never have." And then uh, you act above us, and you just hear that Mark has like just from off screen say, "Finally, the truth." <laughs> yeah. when, when Russell finds out that they all hated him all along, I've already mentioned Russell at the party. But when he declares himself a golden god amongst these kids at this party, I'm on drugs. it's brilliant. I am a golden god! Yeah! 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 I am a golden god! Hey, Russell, go jump. And you can tell Rolling Stone magazine that my last words were... I'm on drugs. Yeah! Russell, I think we should work on those last words. Okay. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. 
I got it. I got it. This is better. Last words. I dig music. Yeah. I'm on drugs! Well, he, he really turns on him on the, on the way out of that scene, which is also like, it's one of the very, it's the very first examples of it getting, of it getting real for, um, for, for William is, uh, oh, yeah. how do we know you're not a cop? Um, which apparently is a, is a thing that, that, that did happen to, to Cameron Crowe. Apparently, uh, one of the Allman brothers got really dark on him one time <laughs> backstage and it really freaked him out. Clearly freaked him out enough that he's, you know, held on to it for 20 years something years and then wrote a film about it i got it man yeah, i got it excuse my kids <laughs> look at him he's taking notes with his eyes how do we know you're not a cop huh are you, are you, the enemy easy stop fucking looking at me easy easy don't worry he only means half what he says but a scene that was definitely in it that I'm sure, Gally, I think you love a lot. To me, this is the most iconic scene in the film. I think anyone, even if you've not seen it, I'm sure people are aware of this. And what I love about this scene is the fact that Russell, we know, is is an arsehole. He doesn't want to apologise. He comes on the bus. The band don't want to apologise to him. The song comes on the radio while they're driving down. And the bassists start singing, and it's this re- reconciliation and this this moment of what well, is this music bringing people together, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. It's so good. I, I, honestly, it, you know me, mate. I, it didn't make me cry, but I was, uh, I was very emotional. Kelly, would you, would you explain to us what diegetic is? Songs playing over a scene, but the characters are, you know, can hear the song as well or, or are interacting yeah, with it in some an way. Of it because they're singing along to it, right? Tiny Dance is an example. Um, yeah. Reservoir Dogs, Michael Madsen yeah. dancing to Stuck in the Middle of with you whilst he's chopping up the cop. Uh, he's playing it on the, I think it's on the yeah. radio. Um, so yeah, that, that would be an example of a, a diegetic music. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you guys, you got any favorites for when music and film it doesn't, doesn't have to be diegetic, can be non-diegetic, can be Kevin Bacon dancing in Footloose, you know, it's fine. Hmm. <laughs> um, Patrick, you want to take this one first? I, I wrote a few down because I was, when you asked, when you gave us this challenge, uh, Gally, 
Yeah, sorry, audience. We were prepped for this. It wasn't natural. Um, I'm not going to just do this off, off the cuff here. <laughs> yeah. Apologies. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, ah, I down peek behind the curtain. I saw you the other day. I watched Wayne's World and I was laughing along to Bohemian Rhapsody in the car, which I love. Um, I, I've got two though that have always stuck with me of uh, these examples and one that really is like goosebumps and one that is just pure entertainment that one of my favorite ever films. And, in Back to the Future, I love it when he plays Johnny Be Good, and your kids are going to love it because he I, he's playing Johnny Be Good, and on the stage, I think it's one of my favorite ever scenes. But I'm going to go something that really like awoke me to certain music and how music can um, affect a film or a tone or a scene and the characters within it on an emotional level is in Shawshank Redemption when. Uh, when he plays uh, Marriage of Figaro mm-hmm. over the uh, tannoy in the in the in the prison, I think he says something like, "For that moment, we were all free men." Uh, it's, it's a really wonderful scene. It's a shot of all the inmates just stood still, looking at the tannoy, and it's a tracking shot up to it as. They're all entranced, and I think uh, Red says, "I don't know what that woman was singing about." I, oh, it's just amazing. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words, and makes your heart ache because of it. What about you, Davlin? Um, I could think of a lot of like non-diegetic soundtrack needle drops. Um, for some reason, Donnie Darko came to my mind immediately. Mm, uh, yeah, uh, the two kind of big hitters. So the opening sequence where uh, with Echo and the Bunny Men, the Killing Moon. Yeah, when he's riding the bike, you know, like it just sets the tone for that film so perfectly. Uh, and then the later scene with uh, the Tears for Fears track, which is basically just like a miniature music video that's also forwarding on the plot and setting up the characters and stuff. Um, there's a, a, a great Japanese film from 2001, two, cool. three, maybe, um, called All About Lily Choo Choo, which um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is uh, uh, director Shunji Iwa. He wrote this, uh, this, this film about um, like obsessive pop fandom in Japan and how it can be used as a release from... The, the film is, is a genuinely pretty depressing look at the Japanese school system and the kind of bullying that's inherent in it and all the, the, the kids they kind of they escape with this this pop star and uh, they created a bunch of new music for the for the film and it's there are just scenes whereby you see a, a, a kid or one of the characters just listen to an entire song and and the re- the reaction that they have to it and the release that it gives them so that would be a good one um I'd not thought at all about that um that scene from uh, uh Shawshank Redemption but that kind of yeah that transformative power of music I don't know Gally did you have any others uh I I did yeah uh, so mine I mean I've got loads I mean I pick every song from Dazed and Confused uh and and every song in Boogie Nights. Uh, and every song that Martin Scorsese has ever dropped in a film, to be honest. But the one that I always go back to is, um, is a, it is a Richard Linklater film. Uh, it's Before Sunset, 
at the end when uh, when the character Justin, played by Ethan Hawke, puts on Nina Simone just in time, and and he's deciding whether or not to stay with Celine or get his flight home, and then Celine starts dancing to the music, and the film just fades to black. And every time I watch it, watch that film, which is many times uh, a year, um, it just gets me every time, and I fall in love with Julie Delpy every time. So to me, that is a transformative moment, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful example of like music, you know, giving us doing do, accentuating what we're seeing on the screen and and just getting to you emotionally, which is uh, which is what happens with with Almost Famous and the Tiny Dancer reconciliation and. A, and I think Kate Hudson's got a great line in it when she just says, um, oh no, I think William says, I need to go home. And she's yeah. just like, you are home. And it's, it's mystical. It's like, mm. oh, this is profound. If I could also throw one more in, it Ooh. is from Almost Famous. Oh, you selfish little It's, um, <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's the scene, uh, uh earlier <laughs> on when, uh, when Russell and Penny, they, they meet again and we, we already talked about how kind of, how great that sequence is and how much is going on. And you see like that little tear come into Kate Hudson's eye, but it's all soundtracked by, um, the river by yeah. Joni Mitchell. And it, mm-hmm. I think that song just completely sells it. It's just so full of like longing and it's, and it's, it's, it is diegetic because it's supposed to be playing in the, in the backstage area. We'll get to the ending then. So William submits the story. Um, he has the interview with, um, well, Russell just says, you know, after the plane incident, you know, just print whatever you print whatever you want, and it feels like a sincere moment from him. Actually, there, you know, he's just gone through a a traumatic mm. uh, event, and he's he obviously just found out about Penny as well. So it feels like he's being truthful when he says, "Listen, just just print what you want." And then the moment that he reads what he says about the Golden God, that's when he's Wait, like, "Whoa!" It's that he gets confronted with it because at the at the start. You know, he's fine with it when Jeff comes out ranting about how he sounds like a dick. <laughs> it's just All I do is talk about chicks. And he says, you are a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I always really love that. <laughs> well, Jeff, Jeff is a dick. I mean, he is like, but, but yeah, he, yeah. at least he's honest about it. And that's but it's, a different... as soon as Russell is, is confronted with, with his embarrassing moment. He has that's... a great line, doesn't he? When he says, um, I'm the you they get when they can't have you or something. Yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. It's a really good line. And, uh, and, and the one bit that, that probably rings a little bit false maybe is just the way that Rolling Stone just drop it because they said, Oh, this didn't happen. I don't know. I don't know what the editorial, um, process is. Oh, they they immediately that walk out of the room if, yeah. you, if you remember. I mean, <laughs> they're, all, they're all talking the to him. Yeah. She yeah. always has a problem and she's wanting any excuse. Yeah. Because it's a kid. He's a 15 year old kid. It's yeah. And there's duped them. So of course they're going to have the backs up. And I know yeah. I buy that. Yeah. The, the actors does really good. I, yeah. Again, it's, it's... she's got a real attitude and you, you get that sense that, like you said, any excuse mm. to, yeah, yeah. to, to I love that bit when she, um, when she snatches the, the manuscript out of Ben Fong Torres's hands and she yeah. grabs it so hard that she rips a little bit off it. And then she looks annoyed at him. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it does give us the best, the best line of the film, which is, ah, it's a puff piece. <laughs> it's just, just, I'm not going to use that for everything that ever comes into me at work. So, um, it's a bit of a puff piece, but uh, it's just such a great line. And, and we didn't, we didn't really mention Ben, uh, Fong Torres, but the, the actor who plays him, mm. just the crazy, you know, crazy. And, uh, yeah. Oh, I know how my lady crazy. gets when I, I don't get up to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, okay, a grand. And I, I love the and, way and that... I don't know who. Um, uh, oh, Rain Wilson's in it. Rain, Rain Wilson. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know who he's playing because everyone I can only assume. He just know, nods in points. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I know Ben Fontoros and Jan Wenner are both real people from Rolling Stone in the seventies from reading um, Hunter Thompson books. So I assume that guy is also a real guy yeah. who used to work there. But um, I know me and uh, me and Aiden used to constantly quote him. Just the line of mm, dark. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that oh, I love um, Rain Wilson. And when when uh, when Williams like really panicking and uh, and he's like, you know, Lester, I don't have I don't have my key interview. He's like, listen, listen, hold on, calm down, calm down. Just tell him it's uh, you know it's uh, oh, and then he says, like, this is Ben Fong Torres, right? Yeah, this, he goes, oh, it's Ben Fong Torres. Tell him okay, it's tell him, tell him this. <laughs> It's a think piece about a, a middling band that are struggling with the uh, limitations <laughs> yeah. in the in the harsh face of stardom. And he's like, he'll wet he'll wet himself. Yeah, <laughs> it's just brilliant. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys one one other thing because I wanted to discuss this. Um, Cameron Crowe, for me, an important filmmaker in in certainly my younger years. Uh, and you know, I loved Jeremy Maguire. I love Say Anything as well. I kind of missed singles. Uh, instead, I was watching. Real- I think I watched Reality Bites. You know, they all kind of came out at that that same. And Empire Records and those there's kind some, of films. There's some was good it- stuff in singles. Oh no, I bet there Give is. Give it a watch. Yeah, I will. It's the one that Matt I've- Dillon's band is called Citizen Dick. So that's. <laughs> I mean, that's a- <laughs> that's got to be worth something. It's the so one you're not pro- a fan of We Bought a Zoo. Then. <laughs> well, this is it. Like Cameron Crowe, just completely dropped off like really like the the descent mm. was quick let's just track it he does almost famous 60 million doesn't really make its money back i think it got like 40 million in total worldwide which is not great but oscars oscar noms is that, is that really yeah that's that's according to the i, I had no i had no idea yeah not a yeah not a proper it, it did okay on dvd and yeah i think it, right, okay, okay. I think it's made its money um you know through you know other mediums but yes uh initially on box office uh a flop or certainly a real disappointment didn't make his money back yeah. vanilla sky comes out huge hit because i i was just like you patrick i admire vanilla sky's imagination i am i admire tom cruise yeah. kind of doing something different with his star persona and being a full-blown arsehole in it but people turned on it pretty quickly i, I remember and then elizabeth town came out and that hmm. is one of the. I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic. It's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Like genuinely, I think just because it comes oh, from someone really? that I, because it comes from someone that I really do admire, to see him make such a miss. And then I watched We Bought a Zoo, but I didn't go to the cinema to see that rubbish. And then I watched Aloha the other day on uh, Netflix, and it is dreadful. And I just, I just wonder if we well, can. What, what I found kind of wild was God, that um, what happened? We uh, so apparently he did We Bought a Zoo because he couldn't get Aloha together in time. So he was trying to make Aloha for a long time, couldn't get it done. So he went away, and the the We Bought a Zoo apparently the book was was popular. So you know he went ahead and uh, and, and optioned that because it was it was the safer bet. Um. Now I I have a slightly different thing in that my uh, my partner was is a big fan of Elizabeth Town a big unabashed fan of Elizabeth mm, Town. Okay. Yeah, so, they are they are. Right. Um, I've only seen it once, um, 
uh, I, I mean, his reputation, I remember I used to read, um, uh, a writer called Nathan Rabin, who used to write for, um, the AV club. And he had this great series called my year of flops, which later became my world of flops because he liked writing them so much that he just kept going. And one of his first entries was, in fact, I think his very first entry was on Elizabethtown, probably because of this exactly the same thing, which is that he found it fascinating that, um, a filmmaker that he liked and, and, and felt could have done really great work chose to, to make this film, which for one reason or another was widely disliked. I think it probably got more of a kicking than it deserved. I think. I think a, a confluence of things happened, which is that, um, Orlando Bloom was, was prime for a backlash and he gifted it to them because it was a very mawkish and sentimental and, and he's dreadful. He was it? not particularly good in the film as yeah. well. Was it around yeah. the same time as like, what was the boxing film he did in the Ridley oh, Scott that, the, film? Oh, and it, oh, he just did um, really bad. Yeah. It would, it would have been similar. It, it was before yeah, Kingdom of Heaven, Patrick, like, Patrick, but it was hit. I think it's the first film he did. As maybe a, it was, as a was it around it was the same, same, same year as Kingdom of Heaven. Calcium and, uh, Kid. I remember, um, Calcium Kid, that was the one. Yes. That was supposed to be, yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that got terrible reviews. Yeah. I, I remember, um, uh, Paul Schneider, his co-star in, uh, in, in Elizabethtown who, um, I don't know if you guys have seen all the real girls, yes, the, the yeah, David yeah, Gordon yeah. Green movie that I'm a big fan of. Um, mm-hmm. he's the, the lead character in that. He's in, uh, the assassination of Jesse James, great actor. Um, so he was in, uh, Elizabethtown and, and he did not have a lot of time for Orlando Gloom. He, he wow. called him Orlando Gloom, <gasps> which is. <laughs> Although Mark Kermode called him Snorlando Ball. Yeah, it doesn't rhyme as much, but it's, 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 um, so I think there was that. And I think also like Cameron Crowe's kind of upbeat mixtape centric, let's all just get along and, you know, white guys can be redeemed for everything kind of optimism probably just doesn't fly in. I don't want to get all 9-11 changed the world, but maybe the public, uh, atmosphere wasn't really, wasn't really into it. Mm, no. Like you said, gals, he's very optimistic. But is there is there any redeeming features in this film? You know, we've said he's a really good writer and he writes good dialogue and quite in in Elizabethtown. Yeah. It's really sweet and like it's 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 clearly very open hearted. Like he's you know it's exactly like Lester Bang says. There's fucking nothing controversial about you, man. <laughs> and for good or ill, that's what it is. When it's, when it's good, you get almost famous. You get something which is completely unfiltered and from the heart, but very nostalgic, but also very well structured. Okay. When it's, when it doesn't work, you get something like that, which is, you like Vanilla it's Sky? still, um, me? Oh yeah, I loved Vanilla. I've not seen it for a, a good few okay. years, but I loved it like okay, around good. that time. It was, I, uh, Got well into Sigaros just around yeah, so that time. Yes, I don't know. because of that film. Yeah, yeah the Agatis uh, Prisun, or whatever the fuck the album was called. <laughs> but, um, that's that's my uh, Patrick pronunciation. <laughs> it's a film that's got about seven genres running through it, and I think that's what confuses mm. it. Near, it's, it falls apart near the end. I think, um, which you know, like you could make, you could argue. But it tries part which of is the a story thing. structure, but it is an unbelievable yeah. deployment of Kurt Russell and an excellent, excellent. You know, yes. it, it's the perfect way to use Kurt Russell in that film, and I'll always admire. And it, and it, the Cameron Crowe touches in there are great. They're really good, but yeah, there, there's to me, there's nothing 
terribly redeeming. And I think the other thing that didn't help Elizabeth Town is the the um, the critic who coined the manic pixie dream girl trope. That came oh, that up. was that was Nathan. That Na- was no, Nathan that was, Rabin. So that was Nathan Rabin. Yeah. So he he coined that. Post. Yeah. So that was in the now this. To be fair, this was um this was a good couple of years after it came out. Yes. Yes. Um, but once the, once the grave was already dug for Elizabeth Town, but it's yeah, its reputation was was thorough. Thing is, he kind of vaguely admired it. Um in fact what he used to do is on these like my year of flops, he would give a, a film uh rather than a rating, he would say it was either um uh, a flop, a fiasco or a secret success. And that grading system is actually taken verbatim from dialogue oh, wow. from Elizabeth town. Um, mm. you know, there's, he says there's a difference. Like a flop is just a failure. A fiasco is something kind of that fails so grandly that you can't help but admire it. Yeah. It's just, it's just one of those, it's one of those strange things where like normally the descent is, is slower. Do you know what I mean? You have a bomb and then maybe they come back with something else. And it's just interesting that in his career, I don't know whether, I think you're absolutely right though, Devlin. I think 9-11 had a big impact. And then I think post that, you got these films that were similar to Crow's types of films, something like Silver Linings Playbook. David O. Russell uh, takes it on. and But you've got these damaged characters and it's a little bit darker, it's a little bit edgier, but it's still got the same sentiment. It's still got the same feel. Still got the needle drops, still got all that stuff, but for whatever reason, he just he just really did drop out of you know. People literally reject, like audiences rejected his films. Cause... And I guess I mean now in the era of just everyone on Twitter replying to everything with OK Boomer, I don't think a white guy born in the fifties talking about how much he loves Led Zeppelin really has much of a cultural space left. You know? No, no. I think. Well, what's right. I mean, Roadies yeah. sounds it's... like it's. It sounds like it's in his wheelhouse. He did a documentary on Pearl Jam as well, right? Yeah, he did a few documentaries, but I think it hit him hard. Crazy. Yeah, crazy. 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 <laughs> crazy. Anyway, should we do our final thoughts on Almost yeah. Famous? Patrick, do you want to take this one? I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I said it at the very beginning. I was very pleased to hear this as a choice because I've literally only ever seen it once before, and that was at university. And there's been some really good films that we've talked about that <clears throat> I... All films I've been revisiting recently, I'm like, wow, I, I watched this when I was a lot younger and I'm starting to become quite aware of how I perceived things when I was younger compared to now. And um I think when I saw this originally, I, I didn't really take it in too much. I don't think it spoke to me as much as it spoke to you guys. Uh, I think that's because of the music that I'm not, that's not really my, my thing, especially this kind of music. Um, whereas Vanilla Sky spoke to me a lot more through its music, which is an interesting, because at the same time, but different, uh, genres. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a story well told. I'm kind of, I wish I hadn't, I'd seen the same cut that you'd watch. I watched the director's cut, so I don't know what comedy part, I, I'm guessing it was a lot of the comedy was added in for me, which I really enjoyed because I thought the tone of it was good and all the, uh, the pieces with the actors, um, and their relationship and the space and, space they're given the looks we've spoken about i I thought it was a fascinating piece um plot's very simple but i literally was along for the ride um, on this on this journey and i thought it looked amazing i thought it's directed succinctly and the script is great and you need a really good script for something like this to take you on and but the it's the actors that impressed me quite as much as crow because 
to, to sell those lines of dialogue, those um, really deep, provocative lines of, of uh, I, I don't know how to, I don't want to say wishy-washy kind of lifestyle, but you know what I mean? That, that kind of free love, 70s music and exploration and opening the lines. I thought it was done really well and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. And we'll end with you, Gally. So I'll go on to Devlin next. Um, quick summation, very, very, very quick summation. Um, I've always really liked this film and I was really happy to get an excuse to watch it twice within <laughs> a week. Um, we've, I mean, we've spoken about the, the ways in which maybe the world has moved on. But to me, I don't think any of that really affects my enjoyment of watching the film. I, I, I find it thoroughly charming and the time just flies by. Um, it is, it is a, a hangout film and that's a real favorite genre of mine. Um, something that you can just kind of get lost in. Um, and that's to do with just the absurd level of, of, of detail and, and, specificity that he puts into it and the the whole team did we talked about how great the production design is and and how spot on the music choices are and yeah it's uh it's completely immersive and charming and it's and it's funny when it needs to be and um there's a lot of the way he portrays the the, the teen characters uh, and the preteen characters some of it hits way too close to home especially the stuff about young young William being all small and hairless. <laughs> has, a, has a very has a very undersized teenager. Um, which uh okay. you know, some of those films it's just like those little moments where it's like he's putting that out there as uh just he's being completely open. And uh and and I like that. I don't think that happens enough. I feel like maybe because we now have such a kind of uh, an instant feedback culture, I, I think it takes a lot of, um, I think these days it would take an awful lot of uh, uh, um, self-confidence and, and a lack of giving a shit to put out something just, just this kind of potentially sentimental. I, I spoke to a friend of mine um, at work who said that uh, an ex-girlfriend of his who he uh, said had, had very, very good taste in music and, and that he really kind of thought was very cool. And, uh, he wanted to watch this film with her and she literally could not get through it because she found it embarrassing. What? It like mawkish and embarrassing and sentimental and like saccharine bullshit. It's and she, it's funny, <laughs> she isn't it? Because I had it. this conversation about Green Book, uh, you know, one, oh, okay. Last last year, and I had that conversation about that. And someone was saying, Oh, it's all, it's all a bit like, safe and easy like, what's wrong with that what's wrong with having hmm. a nice film to watch you know that has i don't know whether you've seen uh green book but it has its moment yeah yeah, I've seen it, yeah. I, I i loved it i know it's really held together by their relationship and the script and the, their the performances are fantastic but it's a really nice film and it's it it tackles race and relations of the time and i remember saying well yeah like i've just said it i'll repeat it What's wrong with having something that's actually quite nice and charming? And I feel great when I come out of the film, like I've seen something that's really uplifted me. What? I I don't see why. Yeah, I don't know whether that's what you felt like when you got that criticism. Um, well, because it was only like this week, and I'm 35, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe Thanks, yeah man, when when poo-poo i poo poo my emotion no no but like when i when i but i mean like when because i mean i've i've loved this film for for two decades now i think um and, and i'm very happy with my you know my relationship to it but yeah i can understand what you mean that yes um I, well, as we said, Cameron Crowe did lapse into the kind of sentimentality that none of us could really get on board with later in his career. So, uh, it was clearly always there bobbing under the surface. Right. But I think for this one brief, beautiful, shining moment, it all came together. And, uh, if this film is to be his kind of, you know, his, his monument, his kind of lasting piece, I mean, what more could you ask for? Mm. Than, than a piece that is so completely thoroughly personal. Cool. Yeah, no. Uh, but yeah, so as today's film picker, gals, uh, how was your rewatch experience? Yeah, I think, um, it was, it was, it moved me in different ways than it did when I was younger. Uh, and, and that was good. That's a good thing. Like I came to it with a completely different perspective and I engaged with it from that perspective, which was from those, those wiser characters looking at William thinking, you know, be, you know, with caution, you know, don't get into this world. It isn't all, um, you know, sunshine and roses and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I really did enter it that way. And, uh, I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm, I'm like you. And obviously there's a, a degree of nostalgia that, that surrounds my viewing of this film and my, you know, it meant a lot to us, you know, we, but he, Started a band and played Thunder, <laughs> Thunderclap and Newman, uh, because of Almost Famous. We tried to. We did. We, we reached in that guitar. <laughs> we did. I can I, still play that song. Yeah, I can probably it. still play the drums on it. Um, you know, not that they're very <laughs> difficult, but, but you know, this, the film had a, a real, a real impact on us when we were younger and when we were going through university. And, um, and I guess what it did remi- remind me of is how much I miss the opportunity for filmmakers that are coming through today to do this type of mid-range film with a stellar cast back in from a studio. We didn't mention it before, but it's DreamWorks, which was Steven Spielberg's studio, and it was it was brand new up and running. And I think Spielberg said to Crow, shoot every word of the script. It's great. And that was it. That's all he said. And and that and that kind That's of free cool. reign isn't isn't maybe as readily available yeah great advice uh great script so you know it's not as readily available and i I guess my worry is because we don't get these middle range films making as big a splash as they used to um that you know when are we going to get the next cameron crowe say that but green book won the oscar Yes, but that's by the, you know, by A. Farrelly brother. I meant like someone who comes in with a unique voice who's young. I mean, don't get me wrong, Cameron Grove's not young now, but I'm on about like the next generation of filmmaker that doesn't just go straight into making a blockbuster superhero. Have you guys seen Uncut Gems yet? I haven't, no. It's on my viewing uh, list for this week. And it was fucking awesome. Well, then I will go and see it this week because that I, that kind of film I've been, I've been craving for, yeah, for quite a while now. I haven't seen one in a while that's, you know, that isn't just an independent film that is this, which has got stars in it. They're not great. They're not huge stars, but it's a big budget. It's a big, um, studio film. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's full of sentimentality, full of positivity. And it's a, like you say, it's an, it's a really good hangout film and amazing music. So yeah, I, for, for some of the issues that I've raised when we've discussed it, um, yeah, I still love this film. 
I've got to say. And this brings us to the terrifying prospect. Uh, next episode, next we are, I'm going to give you a little bit of background as to why this is happening very briefly. Um, a film is coming out. Uh, in fact, I am missing the screening of it tonight to record this episode with you lads, which means I'm not going to get to see it until next week or the week after. But Terry Gilliam oh, is finally releasing good. the long gestating, uh, the man who killed Don Quixote. And also Terry Gilliam has been in the press a lot recently because he's been saying things. Yeah. And, uh, I'm sure you are both well, well aware that Terry Gilliam is, uh, or always has been one of, if not my favorite filmmakers of all time. And, uh, the film of his that I love the most is, uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And I don't believe either of you have ever seen it. Oh, I have. So I feel like it's, oh, you have? Well, then you get to rewatch it because that is our next episode. I, I've watched it, but I think I was 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's excellent then. Um, so yes, we're going to watch uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. So for those people that are looking to um, to watch Almost Famous, um, currently not on Netflix or Amazon Prime. It's, a, it's on Now TV. But it is on. Yes, yes it is on now. And TV. Uh, it's on. It's available on Prime Video through one of the video channels, which you may be able to get a free sample of. Although I would just tell everyone go out and buy yourself a second-hand copy of the untitled DVD. Yes. You can probably get it for about five p, and it's fucking brilliant. Okay. If you go to a computer exchange, you guarantee you're going to find a copy of Almost Famous. Um, but yeah, yeah, go out there and buy the uh, the physical media. I would suggest. But yeah, you can purchase it everywhere. Uh, we will say our goodbyes. Um, before we do, please, if you enjoy the episode, like, subscribe, uh, give us a review on Apple. That will be great. We means we can get a uh, reach more people and join the community. Uh, and we'll say our goodbye, shall we, gentlemen? So, um, OP must die. It's Galley in Glasgow signing out. <laughs> well, lock the gates on these fuckheads. It's Devlin in London. You have a good day. It's Patrick from London. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.